0: I don't want to wear a mask. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. No more masks.
1: Ready? Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Stat. I'm Meg Terrell.
0: I'm Adam Foyerstein. And I'm Damian Garvey. It's Thursday, April 22nd. And here's what we're going to talk about this week.
1: First, we know it's a good idea to wear a mask inside, but do we have to keep them on outside? We dive into the latest COVID debate with Northwestern's Dr. Mercedes Carnathon.
0: FDA commissioner, hello. You know, we're almost 100 days into the Biden presidency and a nominee to run the agency on a permanent basis has still not happened. Our colleague, Nick Florco joins us to discuss. Finally, this week brought some fascinating news in the
2: quest to cure sickle cell disease, underlining a lot of promising science and a few major challenges. We'll
0: talk about that. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus Macaulay from STAT. A silver lining of the pandemic was a rapid acceleration of digital health and telemedicine. I'm here with Joanne Saida, the Global Chief Digital Officer of Real Chemistry, a digitally connected global health innovation company. Joanne, Real Chemistry just released a new report that talks about how patients' digital behaviors are changing during this digital health renaissance. What's a key takeaway from that?
1: Patients are now more active than ever in using smartphones and other digital technology in conjunction with qualified HCPs to diagnose, monitor, and treat diseases as they continue to seek new ways to engage within the healthcare system.
0: Thanks, Joanne. To learn more, visit go.realchemistry.com. stat
2: So in the category of what is it OK to do now that we've learned more about the coronavirus, the latest topic of heated discussion is wearing masks outside.
1: Brown University's Dr. Ashish Jha noted over the weekend that outdoor infections are extremely rare. And Harvard's Dr. Mark Lipsich agreed, tweeting this week, quote, outdoor masking has notable costs and really no evidence of benefits.
0: So are we about to see the great American unmasking, at least when we're outside? Here to help us parse through the issue is Dr. Mercedes
2: Carnathon Vice Chair of Preventive Medicine at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. She's also an
0: epidemiologist.
1: Mercedes, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me.
0: So Mercedes, where do you land on the outdoor masking debate?
3: You know, I think that the uh, data that we've seen thus far do suggest that Transmission of the coronavirus outdoors is exceedingly rare. And that's largely because, you know, we've got wide open air and those virus particles are not as concentrated as they would be indoors. And so I think it's, I think it's very uncommon that we would expect to see transmission. To me, the primary reason to wear a mask in settings where we would see a number of other people or be around other people outside is really the social factor, signaling that we are still in a pandemic, modeling the behaviors that can protect us during this pandemic. And so it becomes almost a social factor and an acknowledgement of where we are today.
2: That's really interesting because, yeah, it does feel at least for me walking around outside where I'm, I'm still wearing a mask, that it's more about what I'm communicating than it is about anything epidemiological. But I'm curious, you know, to a lot of people who are pretty fatigued by some of the things that we've had to do this past year, I can see how that would read as kind of discouraging. Like, at, at what point can they feel comfortable communicating the opposite, you know, not wearing a mask in public because they don't seem to need to?
3: You know, that's a really good point. And, and I guess as an epidemiologist, perhaps I can disclose that if I am outdoors with a low likelihood of being in a congested area where I'm going to see other people, I do not typically wear a mask. I keep one with me at all times. I try to be respectful of people that I come across when I'm walking. For example, if there's somebody walking on the same sidewalk as me and towards me, or if I'm passing them, I will put my mask on. And that's because I don't don't know whether or not they've been vaccinated. I don't know what their feelings may be about mask wearing. And so I want to be respectful and I want to signal that we are still in a pandemic and we still need to be cognizant of what we're doing to try to protect one another. But if I'm out by myself early in the morning or in a wide open space or walking along with my family or other members of my household, I do not typically wear a mask outdoors.
1: So the, the sociologist Zeynep Tufekci also waited on this issue this week, and, and she notes that requiring masks outdoors at all times can lead to miscommunicating about the real risk factors, like being indoors, especially in crowded and poorly ventilated places. And so she makes this point that wearing a mask outside all the time, which is not what you're advocating, but uh, what the mandates seem to, to require, uh, means that we're poorly communicating about what the real risks are. Um, what do you think about that argument?
3: I understand her argument theoretically. However, there are many different scenarios where one is outside. You know, if you are outside hiking in the woods, um, so sp- Spread out wide open air. You can certainly, um, avoid coming in direct contact with other people. No, it's not necessary. However, consider an outdoor music concert. Consider an outdoor party. You know, to be packed into an outdoor stadium watching a sporting event where people are yelling or singing, I believe masking is extremely important in those scenarios because when you are unable to socially distance, there still is the risk of transmission. You know, I think we're all quite aware of what happened at the Rose Garden in the fall. And perhaps those individuals also had indoor contacts, but they were largely outside and thought that they may have been protected. But when we look at the pattern of spread of who became positive after that Rose Garden event, it was people seated in close proximity to one another outdoors. Presumably, those individuals had been tested to some extent coming in, yet we still saw spread. So I do think that it is too early to say that it is not at all necessary to wear a mask outdoors. If you cannot socially distance from other people who you're outdoors with, mask wearing is an appropriate public health strategy until we have more of the population vaccinated.
0: How do you think policymakers handle these different scenarios?
3: it's really complicated for policymakers because the science is evolving so rapidly. As soon as they make one rule or policy, a paper comes out that says something different. Um, I recall in the springtime last year when people were washing their groceries based on a study that suggested that the virus could be live on inanimate objects. And now we've largely backed away from that. I think that policymakers certainly need to have a dedicated individual within their system who is trying their best to follow the latest policies. And I think that we need universal guidance from our top public health agencies on which policies are made.
2: So you mentioned that, you know, a lot of the advice kind of pertains until we have some critical mass of vaccination where things feel safer. When do you think that will be? When do you think it'll be just kind of universally appropriate to not wear masks outside?
3: You know, it's hard to tell right now because at present, uh, an estimated one quarter of our population isn't even eligible for vaccination. And I'm referring to children. Um, and, you know, right now we don't have vaccines for young children. So part of why we are also wearing masks is to send a signal to that younger population that mask wearing is cool. Mask wearing is expected if we want to be able to play with our friends and meet with friends and family. And so I think our goals of herd immunity and vaccinating a substantial part of our population is really going to depend on how quickly we can bring vaccines online for uh, younger children uh, the estimates right now suggest that if we get to around seventy percent of the population vaccinated we may approach herd immunity however these are theoretical and these are theoretical percentages and the virus itself is mutating and it's mutating rapidly and so we have to continue to pay attention to the strategies that we know will work while it does become safer for many of us to be able to gather and get back to our former lives.
1: This is maybe less of a medical or epidemiological question, more of a sort of cultural one, but I I just kind of wonder how you reflect on the way these topics kind of take hold in the conversation and then you know, it almost seems like so many people are disdainful of people who still wear masks outside. Like, why are you mad at me if I'm wearing a mask outside? You know, it's my choice to do that. What do you make of just the way people kind of approach these, these different topics?
3: You know, throughout the pandemic, uh, the pandemic and its effects have certainly extended beyond the science. You know, mask wearing was very strongly a political issue. Vaccination in some areas is a political issue. And what's informing these decisions as well are the ways in which we have interacted with one another in society to say, you know, we know and we have seen the disproportionate impact of the pandemic in some communities. And so it's not surprising, for example, that some communities, particularly black communities, Latinx populations, Native Americans, may be more likely in some cases, to hold on to mask wearing longer than other communities, um, and that's because you know, they these communities have seen more deaths and more severe illnesses, and so it's really hard to impart your feelings about what somebody else's masking behavior is without really understanding where they're coming from in their perspective. Uh, just to give a brief example, um, you know, I have parents who live out of state, and you know, they're hearing the evidence from Dr she's saying, even if you're vaccinated, don't engage in essential travel. And I said, but mother, you can put on two masks and get on a plane and come out here. And she says, no, no, the variants, I'm old, I've got risk factors, right? So she's, you know, using her own personal experience to say, I have these other risk factors, I remain concerned, even if you, my daughter, an epidemiologist, seems to suggest it's safe. I'm still using my own personal experience. You have unvaccinated young children in your household, and the risk isn't worth it. And so, I think we need to be really respectful of what individuals are bringing into the conversation and layering on top of what we know scientifically.
0: I feel like for me, you know, I I, I take the dog for a walk, and I and I think like you, Mercedes, like I, you know, when I'm outside and there's no one around, and I put my mask down and if I see somebody coming up to me, you know, I put it up because I think, again, respect for that other person. You don't know what their situation is. But at the same time, I feel like hopefully I do feel like we get to a point relatively soon where outdoor mask mandates are lifted because I do feel like that is kind of like uh, will be a reward for all of this stuff that we've been doing over the last year to kind of try to keep the virus in check not infect other people and be safe. And so like it's kind of like this little you know, it's a little reward, it's a little prize for us to kind of get to that point where we get to be sort of in that post-pandemic world. Um, And I I do hope personally that it's soon because I'm getting tired of wearing a mask outside.
3: (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I agree with your perspective with the caveat that if it is an outdoor event where social distancing is not at all possible or an option, such as a concert or uh, a sporting event where people are standing close by. I hope that within those situations, people will still consider masking.
0: Oh, yeah. I I mean, like if I went to, I I haven't done any of those things. I I hope to soon this summer. But I think like if I went to an outdoor concert or, or, you know, I went to Fenway Park to see the Red Sox, I would be wearing a mask for sure.
3: Yes. Yes. That's what I hope to hear. Um, Certainly, you know, when I'm jogging outside or walking outside, I generally am not doing that in crowded areas. And so I feel that it is comfortable and appropriate. But, you know, I had the thought, gosh, if I get hurt and need to call an ambulance to go home, and I don't have a mask on me, then I'm you know, presenting a risk to those people who end up trying to help me or transport me. So I do always try to keep a mask on me and encourage my children to do the same.
2: Mercedes, thanks for joining us today.
3: Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: We are nearing the 100-day mark of the Biden presidency, and the FDA is still without a permanent FDA commissioner. So what the hell is going on here?
1: To help us understand this increasingly odd vacancy at the top of the world's most important health regulatory agency, said the Americans who believe that, we are joined once again by Stat DC correspondent Nick Florco. Nick, have they asked you to run the FDA yet?
4: Uh, still waiting on my background check. Unfortunately, uh, my association with Adam is really tripping me up there.
0: Yeah, that's going to be a big fail.
1: It's a problem for all of us.
2: So, Nick, you know, as Adam mentioned, this has been a really protracted wait. What's the latest chatter and speculation going around DC about the status of this nomination?
4: Honestly, most of the chatter I'm hearing right now, frankly, is frustration and confusion. As folks probably know, Janet Woodcock, who's the longtime drug center director, has been serving as the acting commissioner since January. And There really isn't a new commissioner in sight. I mean, this has really started to worry patient advocates and and folks in industry who, like Adam, are saying, what the hell is going on? I mean, obviously, everybody knows Janet Woodcock. The people I talk to don't trust her ability to do the job. But there's only so much you can do as an acting commissioner. You can't really set proactive policy. And I mean, you even had six of the former FDA commissioners weigh in last month, urging Biden to name a new commissioner. And that was a big enough deal that even the White House press secretary was asked about it. And, and her response was something. I mean, she said that Biden wants to have an FDA commissioner in place, but sometime there's a, quote, journey on personnel and determining who the right person is. So not exactly a vote of confidence for Janet Woodcock.
0: So, Nick, you know, the, the list of potential nominees has expanded and contracted over these many months. Who is kind of on that list right now?
4: So I should say first that it's it's pretty telling that that list does seem to be sort of growing right now as opposed to shrinking. Uh sort of says where we are right now. Uh, I should caution first that, you know, these things do sort of change at a drop of the hat. You know, it's it's sort of uh, the name of the game. I mean, during the Obama administration, all the rumors were that Josh Sharfstein was going to get the FDA job and then Peggy Hamburg came out of nowhere to be the commissioner. Uh, that being said, the one name that I'm really, uh, I've been intrigued by and that has come up time and again in my conversations is Michelle McMurray-Heath. Her resume is pretty fascinating. I mean, she's a Democrat first. Uh, She's the first black person to graduate from the MD-PhD program at Duke. And she's been at the FDA before. So, I mean, quite honestly, she sounds like a dream candidate for someone like Biden. But then you consider the fact that she worked at J&J, and and she's coming from the lobbying group Bio, where she's the current president and CEO. And you can imagine the optics of Biden naming the head of a drug industry lobbying group as the head of the FDA. I mean, if you think the opposition to Janet Woodcock is bad— that would be even worse. I mean, we're still also hearing rumors about the the folks that have been floated since the beginning. I mean, we still keep hearing that uh, Lou Borio and Josh Sharfstein, both of which served in the Obama administration and the FDA, are, are still in the mix. I mean, we're at this point still in the stage of trial balloons. And it's pretty shocking given that we're more than 100 days in or almost 100 days in.
1: So if Biden truly wanted to keep Woodcock um, or wanted her to be FDA commissioner, is there anything preventing him from just letting her keep the interim job title indefinitely? I mean, isn't this what Trump did more than one government agency during his administration?
4: So there actually is a cutoff for how long Janet can serve. You're right, Meg, that the law here, the Vacancies Act, uh, folks have tried to get around it previously. Uh, Famously, the Trump administration has tried quite a few times. Um, But under the letter of the law, Woodcock can hold the position until late November. Uh, during a new administration, an acting leader can lead an agency for 300 days. So if the FDA violates the Vacancies Act and somebody wants to challenge it, it's actually a pretty big deal. So any decision that that official was involved in can be challenged in court. And for the FDA commissioner, who is involved in a lot of decisions that impact a lot of uh, big moneyed interests, it's a pretty big deal. So the clock is ticking. Biden can't keep Woodcock just in purgatory forever.
2: So you mentioned the political opposition to Janet Woodcock's nomination. I was curious, how strong is that? Is it a matter of a few loud voices or is there really like a groundswell opposing her getting this job?
4: It's pretty fascinating because I am one of those people that still maintains that Janet Woodcock could get confirmed in the Senate uh, if the Biden administration wanted to push the issue. So there's a, a... small group of loud Democrats who have publicly opposed Woodcock for what they say is her role in the opioid crisis. So we're looking at Maggie Hassan from New Hampshire, Joe Manchin in West Virginia, Ed Markey in Massachusetts. And the newest senator to come out in opposition is Catherine Cortez Masto of Nevada. But that's only four senators. I mean, there could very well be more Democrats that would not vote for her as well. Um, But the issue really here is that the Senate is split 50-50. The Biden administration, if they lose four Democrats, needs four Republicans at least to go cross the line and vote for Woodcock. And it just seems like that's not a risk that they're willing to take at this moment. But that being said, Republicans like her. I mean, I've talked to a lot of Republican aides who are saying we are hoping for Woodcock. So they wanted to push this issue. They could. But it's just a question of whether they want to spend the political capital on it.
0: So we know Janet Woodcock listens to this podcast because, well, (laughs) everybody listens to this podcast. So I I asked this question uh, with with some apologies to Janet. Um, Nick, if she does not get the nomination, um, will she almost certainly leave the FDA? Like, what's her future look like?
4: I'm glad you asked the question, because it's it's the question that's been haunting every FDA reporter for like half a decade. Honestly, there's all these stories that come out about is Janet Woodcock going to retire? Is Janet Woodcock going to retire? Uh, Honestly, that feels like bigger chatter right now in Washington than who's going to be the FDA commissioner. Um, So there is actually a little bit of news on that front, and it's a sign that she could actually retire. Um, So this month she did give up her old position, the drug center director position that she's held forever. Um, She technically still had that position. She was just serving in the acting commissioner role. Um, and she does have a position she could go back to if she doesn't become the, the FDA commissioner. The position is principal medical advisor to the commissioner, um, but it just feels unlikely. It's sort of one of those positions that was created during the Trump administration. It's not really clear what power it has. It's certainly not like the drug center position where Janet had this sweeping authority over the whole agency, and, you know, she made the decision to give up this position. So, I mean, folks are reading the tea leaves that that could mean that she's, she's going to retire if she doesn't get the commissioner role.
0: But Nick, by retiring, does that mean like going to the private sector and making millions of dollars as a consultant? I mean,
4: if it was me, I would enjoy my garden. Janet Woodcock's an avid gardener. I mean, she's in her 70s. But I mean, no one said whether what she's going to do. I mean, it's just it's worth noting that people think of Janet Woodcock as sort of this energizer bunny who will never stop. But she's had a really long career in federal government. I mean, she could just retire happily. But I mean, who knows? I'm sure somebody will try to get her on the payroll.
1: So we're giving this obsessive amount of attention to the FDA vacancy because, of course, it's dead center in our coverage wheelhouse. But is this a real concern anywhere outside of D.C.?
4: I mean, I've been joking to people that this is a harsh reality check for all the FDA reporters in the world who think we're the center of the universe. Um, I mean, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, it's pretty clear that the Biden administration made a very, very conscious effort to roll out some positions related to the coronavirus pandemic. Very very early on. I mean they were earlier than most administrations in doing that and they clearly made the calculus that The FDA commissioner was not one of those positions that needed to be rolled out as early as possible. So uh, That's a clear sign that to some even in DC. It might not be that big of a deal Um, And I mean, it's a big deal to the the patient advocates around the country who care about this But are we hearing about this from you know, the average Joe where the FDA commissioner is? I mean, no but I mean, there's a lot of decisions that are going to impact people's daily lives that the FDA commissioner could really weigh in on. I mean, next week we're supposed to hear if the FDA is going to ban menthol cigarettes. I mean, that's something that actually would impact the average Joe, and you would expect that they would care who was at the in the commissioner's chair. But uh, I don't know if we've we've gotten there yet in terms of people's you know understanding of the FDA's daily operations.
2: Nick, it's always pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for having me. Hopefully,
4: you can have me back when I'm the uh, FDA commissioner.
1: Sickle cell disease has long been a striking example of inequities in science. In the U.S., there are three times as many patients with sickle cell, which predominantly affects Black people, as there are with cystic fibrosis, which is most common in people with European ancestry. And yet the two diseases receive roughly the same amount of research funding, and CF has historically received considerably more attention from the drug industry.
2: But thanks to some recent scientific breakthroughs and a few dedicated biotech companies, there seems to be some good news on the horizon for patients with sickle cell disease, including
0: a few investigative therapies that could functionally cure it. Yeah, this week there was a series of headlines underlining just how promising the science is and just how challenging the business of selling those new therapies might turn out to be.
1: Let's start with the promising science part. Sickle cell disease results from a genetic mutation that affects hemoglobin, the molecules inside red blood cells that release oxygen. All of the gene therapies and genome editing treatments for the disease are designed to correct that genetic mutation.
2: All right, so this week we heard from Beam Therapeutics, which you might recall is a company focused on what's called base editing, which is a really precise form of genome editing where you change individual letters of the genome. So Beam has a base editing treatment for sickle cell disease, which they had told the world earlier that in a preclinical study, it made very efficient edits to those target cells and, you know, seemed to be really promising if and when, you know, it's able to be translated in humans. What they revealed this week is the exact nature of how they did that, which was pretty fascinating. So they put the enzyme that does those pinpoint letter specific edits into basically a classic CRISPR vehicle. So it's sort of a CRISPR within a CRISPR. And the reason they did that is, I mean, it's it's complicated. And our stat colleague, Megan Multaney, wrote about it um, very lucidly this week. But genome editing is not so simple that you just, you know, point your editor at the error and fix it. There's a matter of basically landing the therapy, the molecule that you are using to edit it on the right point in the genome. And it turns out that getting to the point in the genome that's responsible for sickle cell disease is actually kind of tough. And so by packaging the base editor inside the CRISPR editor, the scientists at Beam figured out a way to basically mount a precision strike against the DNA effectively. And that's what led to those really, really efficient edits, which theoretically should lead to a very, very effective therapy. Now, this is just in human blood cells in a lab, not an actual patient in a clinical trial. And uh, Beam is yet to begin the first human clinical trial of this. And it's behind the classic CRISPR methods that are further along but might be less efficient. But it was definitely a sign of just how fast the science is progressing here that, you know, I think most of us didn't know what CRISPR was five or six years ago, maybe seven years ago now. Um, And now we're at this point where we're basically doing the you know pimp my right exhibit CRISPR
0: within a CRISPR experiment. And it's all really fascinating. You know, from a drug development standpoint, what I find interesting about this, Damien, is, you know, like you said, there are all these different ways of of attacking sickle cell disease. Um, you know, we've got traditional sort of gene therapy and we've got classic CRISPR. And now we have this sort of base editing, maybe this more specific approach to it. Um, at the end of the day, they're all trying to do the same thing. And I think what will be really interesting to see as all these clinical trials get started and enroll patients and is whether there's any real difference at the end of the day, like, you know, will patients benefit more from one way of attacking sickle cell versus another, you know, will will one approach be safer or more effective? And, you know, right now we don't really know that. Um, And it'll be really interesting, maybe even fascinating if they're all the same, like maybe if they, you know, none of these things, you know, really differentiate themselves from a patient perspective.
1: Meanwhile, this week also brought some news that could complicate the commercial potential of some of these therapies. It comes from Bluebird Bio, which has spent the last two years trying to convince the German government to pay for its gene therapy for a different rare blood disorder called beta thalassemia. Adam, you had a great story on this that ran just this morning. What happened?
0: Yeah. So uh, this week, Bluebird announced that it was actually withdrawing its gene therapy for beta thalassemia from the German market. That's the first country in Europe where they were seeking reimbursement and pricing for the therapy. And they pulled it out of Germany because they could not reach an agreement with the German government about price. Bluebird wanted to charge 1.8 million dollars for this one-time treatment. They felt like that. Obviously, that's a lot. That's a large number. It's actually the second most expensive medicine in the world. Um, but because of this is a a lifetime benefit, it's a one-time treatment. They felt like that. Ca- that price justified the value of the long-term value for the patient. The German government did not see it that way, and they were essentially under a best-case scenario. The German government was willing to pay half, like basically $950,000 for this therapy. And the two sides, like over two years negotiating arbitrations, appeals, they could not reach an agreement. And so Bluebird made this very difficult decision this week of just pulling out of Germany. And I think, you know, again, this is beta thalassemia, so it's different from sickle cell, but, you know, those diseases are related. And what's really interesting here is, is what impact this may have on Lots of companies that we mentioned that are going, they're developing gene therapies or genome editing treatments for beta thalassemia, but also for sickle cell. Sickle cell is a larger commercial opportunity. There are more patients with sickle cell. Um, Patients who have sickle cell have more severe disease. So the implications here are kind of sobering for companies who want to bring these therapies into Europe how is pricing going to be handled? And and in this German example, it seems like the, the European governments are going to play hardball, and they're going to try to lowball the prices for these gene therapies. So it will be fascinating to see what happens in the years ahead.
1: You know, one of the things I thought was really interesting in your story was that you pointed out Novartis does seem to have found a path forward for gene therapies in Europe. How has it done that? And, you know, why was Bluebird... Worried about setting a precedent when Novartis, um, you know, apparently has has not necessarily.
0: Well, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good point, Meg. You know, and and for for one, you know, we have to we have to sort of think about that. Not, not all gene therapies are the same. Obviously, diseases are also not all the same, right? So, beta thalassemia, I, and I don't want to I don't want to underplay the seriousness of beta thalassemia, but it's maybe a less severe disease, and also there are some treatments out there. Patients get blood transfusions and other things that they can do to manage the disease. Um, you mentioned Novartis, you know, their, their most successful gene therapy is called Zolgensma. It's a gene therapy for spinal muscular atrophy, which is a, an inherited rare and fatal disease that affects newborns. Um, Obviously the, 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 the consequences of, of a diagnosis of SMA are much more dire than they are for somebody who is born with beta thalassemia. So I think there was probably a little bit more leeway, uh, you know, Governments in, in Europe, like they can't just deny access to a, a therapy like uh, Zolgensma. So, you know, and on the other side, on the other side, I think Novartis, uh, you know, basically agreed to a discount. Now, we don't know exactly how much of a discount that they agreed to. Zolgensma is the most expensive medicine in the world. I mentioned that Bluebirds was number two. Uh, Zolgensma is number one. It's $2.1 million per treatment. That's the list price. Uh, European governments are not paying that much. We don't know exactly how... Much of a discount but you know they have reached agreements in countries across europe uh, and so they've done fairly well commercially with that so relating this back to sickle cell you know adam as you mentioned in your story a lot
2: of analysts are, are looking at this as perhaps a read through to the future that these companies we've discussed might have when it comes time to commercialize gene therapies and genome editing therapies for sickle cell and there was another headline this week that, that kind of fed into this narrative uh vertex pharmaceuticals which has a partnership with CRISPR therapeutics on a genome editing treatment for sickle cell they paid to basically increase their stake in that treatment which is now in clinical trials and the money that changed hands implies that they value that treatment at nine billion dollars and there were a few people kind of you know putting two and two together with everything going on saying Are we certain that $9 billion, that's a very large sum of money? And that might not be, even if the therapy succeeds in clinical trials, that might not match up to its actual commercial prospects, given what we're learning about the market for some of these treatments.
0: Before we end this episode, you didn't think we could go a week without talking about COVID vaccines, did you? A quick update on where things stand with the J&J saga.
1: On Tuesday, a European Medicines Agency Safety Committee determined that the J&J vaccine should come with a warning of the rare clots that have been identified in eight people out of about 7 million in the U.S. who've taken the vaccine. And J&J said immediately it would resume shipping the vaccine to Europe.
2: And this all comes as advisors to the CDC are scheduled to meet again Friday, April 23rd to discuss the path forward for the vaccine in the U.S., which is to say, depending on when you're listening to this, you may already know the results of that meeting.
0: And on an unrelated note, the FDA this week finished an inspection of an emergent biosolutions facility, which is making the J&J vaccine. This is the same one where up to 15 million doses were lost due to cross contamination with the AstraZeneca vaccine. The FDA issued a dreaded form 483 detailing nine different offenses at the plant that range from employees not taking measures to avoid cross contamination to unsanitary conditions in the facility.
1: The plant can't make any more vaccine until those problems are fixed. Meanwhile, a stockpile of doses of the J&J vaccine made at that plant is ready for release, but needs to undergo further testing before the FDA will sign off.
2: And as of now, that's the only plant in the U.S. making J&J's vaccine drug substance, at least until Merck comes on board later this year. It remains unclear how this stoppage will affect supply in the U.S. and abroad, but experts this week noted it could take a few months for the plant's problems to be fixed.
1: And that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud.
0: Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode.
1: Our senior producers are Hyacintha Bonato and Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke.
2: And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and who you think should run the FDA, and whether they should wear a mask outside. You can do all of that by
0: sending us an email to readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.